Welcome to Web3 Unpacked. I'm your host, Rich Pasqua, founder and CEO of ARC. Each week we unpack the Web3 revolution. Join us as we discover and explore the people, projects, and visionaries building the trusted web. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Web3 Unpacked. I'm Matt Sky, and we are here with Matteo Grassi, founder of Pop-Up, and it's a really interesting store. And, and Matteo, I think we met, I think, on LinkedIn. You, you posted kind of an inspirational LinkedIn post and just about entrepreneurs and the journey and sort of the struggle, the grit, all that. And it just resonated. And I think we struck up a great conversation from there. Um, but, you know, we typically focus on Web3, but, you know, you have a really interesting business model as far as uh, e-commerce. I think we can find some overlap there for people who are looking at Web3 and some of this this kind of concept of decentralization. But but maybe to kick us off, uh, tell us a little bit about you and, and how Pop-Up came to be. Yeah, so, yeah, my name is Matteo. You probably realize it's not an English name, so I'm actually originally from Italy. I left 20 years ago, moved to New York. I wanted to be a dancer, actually. I never wanted to be an entrepreneur. I just wanted to be a great dancer. So I tried, didn't work. So. Hey, same here, <laughs> man. <laughs> we got two failed I did pregnant. a lot of that when I was a kid. Yeah. Nice. Sure. So, keep going, keep going, sorry. No, good, continue. Yeah, and yeah, I ended up traveling around the world and uh, started my own business because, I don't know, I think I just wanted to have the freedom of traveling. And, and at the time, there was no remote work opportunities, so I decided to start in my own business and started in e-commerce. That was like really in the early days. So I'm a, literally a SaaS founder for like two years, but I've been a merchant for 14, right? Uh, so I've been always on the other side, like selling products uh, and uh, bootstrapping everything. So I, I always use my own money. I always try to hustle as much as I could um, and uh, build in businesses. The idea from pop-up i think came to be because i think a passion that i had or something that always kind of struck me was i grew up in a very small village in italy and i saw how the small business could not adapt to the ever-changing uh, you know commerce landscape uh, retail landscape and technology ended up like closing down and not being able to actually compete with everyone else and also i never like big corporation. I kind of a socialist at heart. I think, I don't know, it's, I have an idea of socialism that is very European. So maybe kind of different from America idea of socialism. But I think I always, very different. Yeah, <laughs> I always believe that the economy should be decentralized, right? And uh, you shouldn't have the power to like, uh, you know, to have an oligarchy or just like few companies holding uh, the power and holding uh, basically the economy uh, on their reins. Um, same as in e-commerce. So I believe that the power should be small businesses. So I think pop-up is that, you know, we build pop-up for that, to basically empower small businesses all over the world to compete with the giants and being able to convert more and be more successful. Although I think that's a similar concern too, just on on that note, just I, I think, you know, when we look at Web3, it is a lot about decentralization, right, Rich? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So, and it's interesting because Matt and I were talking about pop-up and you and kind of your your environment and what you've been doing. And the idea of this this question came up of, you know, centralized versus decentralized. You hit on a lot of interesting points um, that the entire world is actually going through right now. 
and they don't realize it in the way, you know, in the way we realize it in web three, but it's interesting as it relates to pop-up and, and, and products like yours where you're allowing the consumer to take the power back, um, have more control over the build, the quality, all in a drag and, you know, drag and drop kind of codeless environment. Um, that's beautiful. It's a wonderful thing. And we see lots of different software companies doing that. But the question I, I really have is, uh, you know, and it gets to this decentralized idea is if you're allowing someone to come on and, you know, build a storefront on pop-up opposed to, let's say, an Amazon store, Amazon is what we call the, the big, the big, you know, gorilla in the room, uh, the beast that allows you to partake in a much bigger marketplace. How do you talk to your clients and how do you, how do you approach that? Because when, once you go on your own and in web three, it's like you are now a custodian, you're a personal custodian of your own information and assets and same for pop-up. Now I'm really the sole owner of the storefront, but with that decentralization comes the idea of being able to market yourself and get into marketplaces. How are you, how are you guys approaching that? Yeah. I mean, I, I do see that as, like, I would say Amazon, Amazon is a competitor at the end of the day. So you have to treat it as a competitor, meaning that you don't yeah. actually own the data and the only thing you can actually have, if you have your own e-commerce stores is the data from your customer, you said an email or a phone number or whatever it is. Once you have the data, you are able to maybe close a brand that is not working, restarting a brand, but your customer, you, your customer is, the customer is yours. Uh, if Amazon decides to take you down, you know, they have all the data, they own everything. And I do see this in music as well. Like you see that, you know, like artists with uh, big music labels and things like this. So you, you produce music, you, you are famous and you are, uh, you know, you are selling a lot of records, but you know, if you have a deep contract with a record label, yeah, they, they, they own you. And you see a lot of artists now, especially in Web3 as well, or utilizing, you know, NFTs, etc., to actually building their own community and maybe, you know, not having like 100,000 followers, but maybe they have 10,000 followers, but it's a loyal following and it's them, you know, and they control and they have mm -hmm. full control regarding like the merchandising sales or the store or whatever, and the music as well. Mm -hmm. I think we, we see that a lot, I think, in different, uh, in different areas, not just in e-commerce. It's, it's, I love the analogy of the music industry because, you know, we all grew, kind of grew up with Napster and I miss we all Napster. read the news and we all understand, <laughs> you know, the idea of, of rights management or the lack thereof, <laughs> you know. Um, how do you help your customers with contracts? Because I can see NFTs being kind of an interesting part of, of your universe at some point where you can spin up really nice kind of uh, drag and drop NFTs and or smart contract, whatever, smart contracts to help people say, hey, I am, I own this IP. I own these products and the brand mm -hmm. itself. How are you helping them in that way, if at all? I mean, some, some, some shops don't do that. No, we have not uh, explored uh, NFT um, sales, but we are basically building our public API, which means that any company that uh, does smart contracts or does uh, NFT sale, that being like a piece of art or a piece of music, 
they will be able to build on pop-up and uh, create whatever whatever they want. So integrating that smart contract solution on the blockchain into our platform. I think the way we see pop-up, we want to build things uh, in-house that relate to the customer journey. So anything that relates to the customer journey, we're going to own it. But obviously, we want to create an ecosystem around the platform, right? So if anyone has an idea or wants to build an app, that being a live stream or an NFT solution, etc., they're going to be able to build it around us, right? Um, Shopify did amazing on this. I think the biggest uh, pro that Shopify has, the biggest the thing that they did is the ecosystem they created around the platform between applications and developers, etc. And if you see other platforms like Squarespace or Wix, they don't have the same ecosystem. And that's why, you know, they are what they are and Shopify is what it is. So I think with Papa, we're really looking into creating a platform that's a central point where everyone can benefit from it, that being a course creator or an app or a developer. Matteo, would you say the biggest difference when you look at Shopify, Squarespace, Pop-Up, is that on the Shopify side, there's just still too much complexity. There's like a high point of entry. You have to kind of understand what you're doing, and it's not easy to set up a store in a rapid A-B testing way. But then when you go to the flip side, you go to like Squarespace, it's just maybe it's there, but it's not a very robust solution. And you've kind of cornered this interesting place between simplicity and power. Yeah, I mean, you have to look at like, commerce first and web builders. So the only commerce first platform to me is Shopify. And then you obviously Magento, Demando, but we're talking enterprise. Squarespace, Wix, and all of that, they are web builders with e-commerce functionality. They were not born commerce first, they were born as, I want to build the sites, right. and then they added the e-commerce functionality afterwards. What we noticed, and the reason why I think we will pop up is that every e-commerce platform took a blueprint that was established in the 90s from Yahoo Store, which is a homepage, a product, paid a cart, and a checkout. And what they did, they made it accessible for everyone. And we realized that merchants nowadays, they wanted to move away from this blueprint and they were trying to build customer journey that can be very simple or very complex. The customer journey can be a product page and a checkout, right? Without a homepage and about us page and all of that. Or it can be a link in bio directly into a checkout. That can be, you know, something super simple that you don't need the complexity of Shopify or you want to have four or five different landing pages going into a lead page and going into another page and A-B testing checkout. So you have all this complex setup. So we're like, why don't we create a platform that it gives you the elements, like the modular elements, and then you can choose whatever you want. Same as Notion, right? Notion, my mom can use Notion to make her CV, but then you have enterprise clients using Notion for their own uh, you know, project management tool, right? because Notion gives you these building blocks and then you can build whatever you want. So I think pop-up is very similar to that. We give you the building blocks and that can be very simple or very complex depending on what you want. Quick question, Matteo, um, <clears throat> because, I mean, it sounds like a beautiful system and it, to, to Matt's point, you know, you're, you're striking that balance between, you know, you know, options and utility and then being, you know, simplification and, you know, having a simple user experience. How, like, cause, cause we all use WordPress and we we're plugging in Shopify's and we're doing this and doing that. And the, the one thing for me, I mean, I've, we've been all been using WordPress for many years. It's always like, there's a, there's a lot of care and feeding that goes, that goes into WordPress 
you know, your plugins every week. It sounds, it seems like they're going out of date. You have to, you know, update your WordPress, uh, you know, PHP files or whatever you're doing. Um, how are you guys working around maintenance? Is it automatic? Um, is the app all just really web-based and just kind of it's there and you're not really, there's no maintenance? No, very little maintenance. I think Shopify did a great job on this. Squarespace is the same. I think WordPress is still very much, has always been very much behind. It gives you a lot of flexibility. It's very developer-friendly. But, you know, if you want to use it on your own and you don't know how to maintain it, it gets very, very complex. So we're trying to, yeah. we try to build a platform. We're building a platform that requires no maintenance on anyone's side and at the same time allows you as well to uh, not needing to code or knowing how to code uh, if you want to build if you want to build uh, your own customer journey if you want to build your own site. So I think fighting complexity is always in the back of our mind. O o on one side, we you can do complex things with pop-up, and the challenge that we always have is like how can we give the ability to merchants to build very complex uh, solutions in the simplest manner as possible, right? And when I demo the platform, people say, oh my God, this is, this looks so simple. And, and I think that's, that's, I think is the best compliment that I hear is like, yeah, this looks simple. Ab absolutely. You yeah. You, you, you had, <laughs> you, uh, Mateo, you had me at, uh, no maintenance <laughs> yeah. sold. There sold, you go. Yeah. You talk a lot about customer journey, Matteo, uh, maybe tell us uh, like what that process is in terms of how a pop-up experience is different, both from a merchant standpoint and a customer standpoint versus what we're used to seeing. Cause you're kind of reinventing a little bit of how we shop or at least updating the model. Yeah. I mean, on a customer standpoint, we try not to, uh, the customer is not going to know it's on a pop-up store or, uh, in an e-commerce in the different store. So you don't have the landing page experience. You actually have a rich experience. You can click, you can uh, browse products. We created a framework that allows you to browse product without ever leaving the page. So the customer doesn't really know that uh, they're browsing a different store. So, and, and this is important because you want to give an experience to the customer that is visiting your store that is not too different, right? Because the more familiar it is, the better it is for them. To the point that a lot of stores are now emulating Amazon checkout because people are so used to Amazon checkout and they studied that if you actually make a checkout similar to Amazon, you convert better because it looks familiar. Right? But on a merchant standpoint, you're actually able to uh, create the customer journey. A customer journey starts with like an entry point, which is basically like the door into your store, as if you were like in a real life situation, a real store. I was in a store today in London. And yeah, I mean, I had, there was one door for uh, on the floor for women, and then there was another one for men. And then there was a completely different journey that uh, people were taking between the store, right? And there was uh, an upsell close to the teal and things changes constantly, right? Like in, uh, in real life, merchandising in big stores, that's what they do. Like they range the, the stock and they move the store right. and they're actually understanding how um, customers are coming in and getting out. But online, this doesn't happen, right? And so we realized that why don't we give the same uh, functionality or the same ability that you know merchants have today in real life online so you can actually arrange the pages one after another connect them together and build a customer journey 
I was just going to jump in there really quickly. Um, does your system allow for like automation in the sense that, as you were mentioning, you know, like physical goods on a shelf, like something's really popping off this week or month. Um, yeah. d does that product elevate a little higher? And um, so there is automation. Yeah, there is automation. There is action that run behind the background, but you also the ability to, I think, Whenever I did marketing, there was always a framework that I used, which is test, iterate, and scale. So you test something, see if it's working, and then you try to do it again. And then if it works again, you then scale it. So I think pop-up is made for this. You can test different things, see what's working, analyzing the data. And then once you find the right combination, which is usually the right advertising or the right uh, influencer collaboration or the whatever, the right acquisition method, and you find then the right post-click experience and they blend in together, that's where you actually, the magic happens. And then when you start scaling basically your product. And I think that's where we come in. We come in for the past week experience. Uh, the part that stands out to me is really, like you said, when you go into a real store, you don't just look at an item. Like on Amazon or online, we assume you always enter a new page. You completely lose where you were because you want to browse and, and look at an item. But when you're a real store, you just pick it up and you're still there. So in a sense, pop-up, it's almost kind of a metaverse-like concept because you're building basically the idea that you can look at an object, but you're not leaving the page. Everything is popping up. You're still there. You're still at the you still know where you are foundationally at that store, and then you can keep looking through items. I think that's a really rich, isn't that? I think that's a really significant shift in the way we could shop. It's something we take for granted that we always lose where we are, you know, dependence on what we're looking at. Well, I, I mean, it's it's a great point, um, and customer experience is pretty much every it, it's everything really. Obviously, com combined with technology and whatnot, and the products you're offering. But um, uh, it, it's interesting I to see. What's that? No, no, no. It's finished. I'll, I'll, I'll jump in later. Oh yeah. Okay. So um, <laughs> you know, if if Glad we're it. imagining we're on Amazon, uh, the way and and people's shopping habits bend to technology, which is really not right. They should be observing users and the way they want to, way they want to shop. So to your point, Matt, the way to shop and kind of collect as you go is adding it to a basket, or you have to add it to a wish list or like it or whatever methodology they have in place or features in place. Um, it would be a, a, a bit more interesting if it was like slightly organic, uh, where maybe half the screen is like almost like you're comparing things as you go price and it maybe breaks it out into price and, and, you know, visuals and, and weight and maybe some of the, the other specs of, that you're looking into. But yeah, I see, you know, people bend to technology, you know, and it's nice to see platforms that are a bit more user centric and allow people to dream a little bit. And, and like you said, br like browse literally. And Mateo, on, the, on that point, you, you, how did you come up with this concept of, of understanding that intuitive shopping experience, really? Like, where did you see that was something that needed to happen, that people could stay in one spot and, and explore objects without losing where they were? I think it came out with the customer journey, because one thing that we realized is that I don't know what commerce is going to be. I, I know that right now we're shopping with pages, but back on the metaverse, Maybe in a few years, we're going to be shopping in virtual rooms, right? Uh, in the past, there was no online shopping. <laughs> we are entering in a store and buying goods and, and getting out. But one thing that is constant and you're always going to be there is a customer journey. 
So our bet has been the customer journey. Now, this customer journey is elements that are pages, but if virtual shopping is going to become the norm, we are going to build journeys with virtual rooms. Instead of pages, we're going to have virtual rooms. So it's, uh, I think the idea of the customer journey was the, you know, the driving factor of why we build Papa. But to be able to build the customer journey, you need to have one step to another, right? It's like you can't have multiple... Uh, multiple links or uh, things that are bring you away from the starting point because the moment you have that uh, you basically break the journey so once we came in with the idea of like this browsing experience where you know the customers click on uh, any link on the platform and then eventually uh, they always stay there but they can actually check the products and check uh, the content it came in because we need to give one call to action to bring into the next step. But while they're in their room, while they're in that page, we need to give them as many uh, inputs that they need to be able to shop online. And that's the reason why funnel builders or journey builders, they never had this type of experience. They always had one call to action because you, know, you can basically send people to a page, but you can just tell them, hey, go into the next page. Uh, we kind of change that with our, with our framework. Oh. What about, just curious on, on sort of that A-B testing side. So like a merchant, when they're designing a customer experience, a customer <clears> journey, uh, do they have to be a little better at predicting where they think a customer will go? Or can they, I guess with this, they're able to really rapidly test and figure out the best way to convert, right? Because the old-fashioned model is just show them everything and we'll just see where people end up. But this is a bit different. This is guiding a customer in a much more vivid way. Yeah, it's like uh, building, a, um, building a store in real life. You start with an entry point, which is a door into your store. You can have one door, you can have five doors. So you say, where do my customers coming in? They're coming into the main door, and then maybe I want to have a door for men, a door for women, and maybe a door for people that are in the sports. And then I want to have a door for my link for my link in bio, which is basically everyone that's coming from my social media. They maybe want to have a door from anyone that just <laughs> don't want to shop, but they just want to give me some information and maybe get a free PDF or a free book. So you start to think about where your customers are coming in and then you build these doors. And once you build this door, you start to building the rooms that this customer will come in after they open the door. And after the room, obviously you build the checkout, which is where the customer are gonna pay, right? And that's, uh, and you customize them the way you want. And then you embellish them in the front end. You know, you, it's like literally building an architecture, like a, like a building, you know, you build the, the framework and after that you start painting uh, based on whatever you want. So maybe you want to have the women room pink or the men blue. <laughs> I'm very boring right now, but <laughs> that's, that's, that's to be the name. <laughs> yeah, really delving. <laughs> yeah. Totally get it. And, and Matteo, <laughs> Matteo, quick question for you. Um, how detailed, cause I mean, I, I totally agree even on so on the social media end of things your literally your funnels that are coming into your store they're all different youtube is different from linkedin link uh linkedin's different from insta how much detail can you put in into that refinement or filtering into the store because that's very interesting you can create as many entry points as you want so if you want to have uh, a link in bio or a, a you know an entry link in bio for linkedin and one for youtube and one for instagram you can just basically create five different entry points and customize the way you want 
you can have one entry point, you can have a hundred. It doesn't really matter, you know, if mm. you can actually have as many as you, as you want. Does the system recognize? Um, does the system recognize any of the kind of the advertising uh, or fingerprint? Uh, there's a thousand different ways to explain it. Um, you know, personal or first or third party data. Does it? Does it understand that someone's a female coming in? No, we're not able to understand the sex or any information like this, unless the customer can, if it's a customer that you already have, so you can store the cookie and then basically you can yeah. know that. Although the cookie policy is going to change as well. So privacy and data, it's, it's, yeah. yeah. But we are going to be able to understand maybe the device, you know, if it's coming in from a mobile, if it's coming in from desktop, right? So maybe you can start to do routing based on device that we, we're going to be able to do that. But that really depends on third party. You know, it depends on iOS if you decide, okay, let's block everything now. You're not going to be able to see anything. So at the moment, you can create dedicated yeah. links. Uh, so via URL, uh, and then basically you can control that the way you want. But routing is coming in soon as well. Um, mainly example that I gave you, mobile versus desktop. Oh, but it's a great mix because it's providing privacy for the customer to a certain degree, but it's also providing pivotal information for the merchant. You're able, you're able to get the data yeah. you need. And that's something we always talk about on this podcast a lot is owning your data, you know, mm -hmm. so very relevant. I want to jump topics a little bit in yeah. terms of Mattel. You're one of the you're always so great with marketing and, and putting yourself out there. You always have these really compelling interviews and you've been jumping in with pop up TV and you're doing all you're just you're really capturing the essence of entrepreneurialism in such a fun and vivid way. Um, maybe tell us a little bit about that. And this is just incredible. Some of the time you've spent uh, in Ukraine and, and having a Ukrainian remote workforce as well. That's something really top of mind, really relevant right now. Yeah, I think, I think when I decided to start uh, producing content for pop-up, uh, I know that people don't really care about the platform and they don't really care about, you know, they don't really care about these things. They really care. They about care. <laughs> yeah, kind of. But I think when you do content, you want to inspire, motivate, you want to really touch people on an emotional level, you know, uh, that even education, that is uh, motivation or even like pure entertainment, right? So when I started creating of TV content, I wanted blending the three together. So the series that we're doing, which is kind of a series of documentary, the, we started with the first one in Ukraine. Ukraine was easy because my wife is from Ukraine. I have a, I lived there as well for a while. So it's, uh, it was easier to go back. And uh, even in June, we went back in June and doing a documentary about e-commerce businesses uh, and how they are being able to thrive and pivot as well during the war. And the take is like, yeah, it's it's interesting, you know, to see Ukraine and, uh, you know, it's obviously in the news, but the take is always about education as well. Because to me, it was digging in this e-commerce business and understanding what was the uh, techniques or the triggers that they were able to use to counteract, you know, everything that happens to them. And that being a war, if uh, we have to experience a recession in the Western world, two different things, but very similar at the same time. It's kind of just an unexpected event and how you can leverage, you know, the, um, you know, the fear and all the negative emotion, you can twist them around to actually fuel the motivation that brings you forward. And that's where the digging that came, you know, in Ukraine and interviewing these brands and their story and 
one thing that I was very surprised it was it was that most of them did better during the war than in the past. It's because their drive hmm. was ten times ten times fold. And all of them they donated twenty to thirty percent of the profits to uh, the Ukrainian army. And all of them they were growing. Like literally mm-hmm. growing. Hiring more people and getting more people in. Because it's like we want to grow because we don't want to uh, give up. We want to show that we're not afraid of Russia. Russia wants the economy to stop. We want to prove them wrong. At the same time, we want to support the army. So there was all this motivation that made men just 10 times better. And that was that was like amazing to see. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of the message that in the documentary is, is, is going to come out, you know? Yeah, that, that's that's fascinating, Matteo, and you know, kudos on all that work and the focus there. Um, and, and you know, I think one of the things that, that Matt and I were reading uh, is the the ministry, the Ministry of Digital Transformation for Ukraine, which is awesome that they have that. By the that way, that is awesome. Is now accepting fourteen different cryptocurrencies, and I, I think over the course of a, you know the the war, let's put it that way. They've reached a hundred million dollars. Oh yeah, in yeah, crypto. Like, that's amazing. Yeah, I mean NFT. You, you you can go to Kiev and go to NFT exhibitions. Uh, there is uh, Bitcoin banks all over the place. You can buy an apartment with Ethereum and Bitcoin now. You can actually buy apartments there. So it's like awesome. East twenty eight. Mikhail is twenty eight twenty nine. You know they they look at the future in a way that you know as Westerners they they we don't. Because they, they're hungry and they have less roadblocks. They basically, there's a young uh, politicians that they can do whatever they want. And they understand technology. Like, if you're 70 years old, mm-hmm. you don't understand these things, right? What's, what, what do you understand? And another thing with that with politicians. Yeah, it, it, yeah it's, it's like, if I give the power to someone that is 17 year old to build my future, he has a future. I mean, a 70 year old, I, I don't think about my future. But a 28, 29 year old, of course, you know, they, they have the drive to move the country forward. You know? Yeah, it's always, it's always, um, uh, you know, kind of the, you know, war-torn nations and, you know, developing nations that are using these advanced technologies because out of necessity, just to survive, Right. Um, yeah. if the, the fiat currency is is basically on fire. Uh, it's worth nothing. The government is really, you know, moving at a, a, a turtle's pace. And now people are using blockchain and cryptocurrencies to really step ahead and, and just even keep up, keep their head above water. You know, um, so, you know, I always look to like India and and even back in the mobile days, right, when mobile was coming out in the United States. The way I saw it was like, wow, this is amazing. And then you talk to some engineers and they're like, yeah, buddy, uh, this has been around for like 10 years uh, in Dubai or or the Middle East or wherever. And uh, because it's necessity, they don't have physical infrastructure. They don't have power lines Um, and satellites weren't as prevalent. So the mobile, you know, the mobile end of it became the thing and the hottest thing. And now we're on to the next thing. So it's fascinating to watch that. I think the main thing as well, which is obviously with Ukraine and I see a lot of countries like this, you have the countries that are united and the government uh, and and the people trust the government. 
you know? So it's like when you implement something, that's right. you implement it. like you want to do it, you say, hey, from today, we're going to accept Bitcoin and Ethereum. Done. Imagine doing this in each other place. You know, the, the political party, no, we don't want this because, right. you know, whatever. We have to say no, whatever the other party says. So you have this bipartisan look and the people are divided and you fight against each other. And then you have the federal state. So every does, state does whatever they want. So like implementing this type of pr progress, you know, it's, it's really easy. You know, it's not, it doesn't have any friction. <clears throat> That's why progress happens fast. Yeah, it's great. Excellent point, Matteo, because um, adoption is all about removing roadblocks and friction points. Uh, and when you do that and you understand and, it, and you like it sounds like Ukraine has a very natural consensus mechanism kind of put mm -hmm. into place. The people are speaking, the government's listening and then reacting fairly quickly. That's the way it's supposed to work. That's the way blockchain, <laughs> why blockchain was created, you know, um, and, and, you know, frankly, not to go down this, this rabbit hole outside of politics, um, you know, underneath the surface and, you know, Matt and I and the ARC team see this almost every day. There is politics going on, centralization versus decentralization. Um, what is Ethereum doing uh, versus, you know, uh, proof of work ver versus proof of stake? You know, are you putting us back into the old world again as, as you know, it, because we've been pushing so hard on this new kind of decentralized, trusted web, if you will? Uh, are you pushing us further away from that? Um, so these questions are coming up hard and fast across the technology uh, sector as, as well. So it's fascinating. I have a, I have a question for you. Uh, do you believe in true decentralization? Do you believe we can actually be 100% centralized or, or this should be a, somehow a form of governmental units, let's say, in the, in the middle to manage things or to overlook yeah, a great question, and it's um, you know we may have to have you come back on for that to finish this one. Uh, the long form uh, and the short form, yeah, yeah. Well, we'll do the short form, but um, it is a, it's a wonderful question, and it's a question that everyone should be asking themselves once they understand. And you know, we talk about this all the time. Once your mind jumps the chasm from normal land to wow, things could be decentralized and we can actually control things through consensus models and and cryptography and, you know, all this interesting technology, um, you start to you start to believe that 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 can happen. But what's happening is it, it is so liberating. The idea is so liberating from a financial, personal, business standpoint, gaming standpoint, freedom standpoint. It's absolute freedom. With absolute freedom comes responsibility, right? Responsibility over your token keys, responsibility over, hey, I'm doing a decentralized insurance plan now. Well, you need to keep up on that, right? Now you are the, the guardian of that. I don't know if the world is ready for that kind of responsibility, number one. Number two, I, I, I truly believe it. I truly believe it's not coming, it's here, and it will hit people like a tidal wave because you now you'll be able to spin up companies that are in the ether that are un, almost untraceable to anyone outside of your organization unless you so choose to make it um, there are lots of interesting 
social, you know, sociological and theoretical discussions happening around what could happen to society. You know, it, it's it's kind of profound, but I believe in it. I believe it's a trusted way um, to build you know, micro, micro societies and or businesses and or whatever you want to create in a trusted manner. Now, on the flip side of that, who would be nervous about that? Governments, banks, centralized organizations will are freaking out over this. Um, and they're wanting to not only, you know, con- um, regulation is okay. And we, we always say on our side, a little bit of regulation is good. You want to keep the bad actors out. You want to, um, you know, invite the government in to partic- participate with this, make sure things are on a level. But once you start to step in, which we're seeing in the United States, um, congressmen and women uh, stepping in and saying, we want full control. It is a, it is a hard asset that is tradable on multiple exchanges, we want to take control over it, just like the NASDAQ. Um, that's something to me is worth fighting for. That, that, is, that is, when you give that up, uh, you might as well move on to the next technology because you're going to lose the, the entire essence of it. Okay, I'm going to stop there. <laughs> we could go on for another hour. I, was listening. I, was really I mean, I'll, I'll give a really, really quick one. Then I want to make sure we throw that question back to you, Mateo. I think, I think there's a certain degree where people have, have – and this is across all platforms, social media, shopping. When we talk about Amazon, when we talk about data, I think there's a degree of individuality that we've lost that people want to be able to retain. And this isn't even political or anything. It's just data itself and being able to have privacy again because we live in a virtual world now. So things that you know when the internet was coming of age – you could give out more because it didn't your whole life didn't depend on it but now we live exclusively in these digital spaces so to me those movements are important and including the things you're doing at pop-up and the kind of the work you're doing to give merchants and customers more control over their experiences um but then uh, i think there there always will be as long as governments continue to exist that tug of war so i don't think we're you know i don't know i don't know if there'll ever be a fully decentralized world or not I think probably regulation at a certain degree protects people within reason, but but yeah, this is like a core. This is a global thing, right? I mean, we're talking, we're figuring it out right now. What what does the future of government and technology, two at times very different worlds, how do they mesh together? And do the people in government? You were talking about this in terms of their age and their experience. Do they understand the policies they're setting as well? Like, do they know how to govern tech? And tech will say no, but at the same time, tech will take everything if they can. Large tech companies. Uh, have no restrictions in, in what they want to get. But let me throw it back to you, uh, Mateo, because th- I'm sure you have an interesting view on this. What does decentralization mean to you? I said I'm a socialist at heart. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I guess it's, but what does um, that mean? That's an, that's an interesting thing, though, because that you know you say that we throw that term around, but maybe break it down a little bit. I think he's an Italian socialist. Let's get it straight. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's way different than any other ones. I think to me it's as simple as like when people mention the state, right? It's like the state is us. And, and it's, it's, it's really simple concept that the people in government are our employees that we pay to manage our money and to basically do things for us. But we are in control. We, we decide what needs to be done. And this has been lost, I think. 
And it's the simplest. It should be like this, right? But then you have the lobbies, and it, it doesn't feel like that. It feels that we are not empowered anymore. That's, you know, we, we have people empowered, and now they control what we're doing. In a kind of a sneaky way sometimes, sometimes we don't even realize it, that they're doing this, uh, but, but they are. And to me, decentralization, meaning that we should be able to make decisions together. We should be able to have a system that allows as well for uh, vote, voting rights, you know? So I do, I, I really love the concept of DAO, you know, in, uh, right now, you know, it's, it, we should have voting rights, Absolutely. technology as well to counteract frauds or counteract everything that is there because humans will always try to take advantage of each other. So if we can actually, uh, you know, use blockchain to uh, fight that, that's another, that kind of use case. So it's the transition, but at the same time, also making sure that uh, we control the part of, you know, society that wants to basically take advantage and make money and scam others. And they will always be there. They were there 500 years ago, a thousand years ago, they're still there now, you know? And you see, it especially now with NFTs as well, you've been seeing a, a lot of things. You were seeing the stuff with dropshipping, but dropshipping was the thing, right? So I mean, this decentralization, that's why the question was like, do you, do you feel it's like decentralization, meaning like anarchy or there should be a centralized unit? And I do feel there should be, you know, but, but the, the people are in control. They should be guardian and custodians of the values that the community uh, has established together. They should be guardians. They shouldn't enforce, you, they shouldn't make the values and, and try to change them or trick people to be in a certain way that they're not, that they're not, I think. Yeah. Sort of an organic consensus, I guess is what you're saying, right? Exactly. Organic consensus. And uh, we establish the values of our community, what we stand for, what we fight against, and what uh, what is right and what is wrong. I have a weird vision on legality as yeah, well. That... Because, like, what's legal and what's illegal? Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's, it's really interesting to see European Europe, the idea of European, the uh, of decentralization and working it, like that's how you, the U.S. was. We were one nation, you know, indivisible and united. We made decisions together. We don't do that anymore. But that's what's missing: core values and purpose. Once you have that, the consensus is very natural. But when, once you eliminate that, now you actually have to have a third party enter blockchain, help you do that. Kind of sad, but exciting at the same time. <laughs> but that's, that's what Ukraine, as we, if you look at Ukraine, that's, that's, you, we should look at Ukraine now to understand why things have been working in that way or in a certain way. And I think it's because they find, in a way it was bad, but they had a common enemy. So by uniting against the common enemy, a common cause, they establish values, a values, a mission and purpose for the entire nation. It doesn't matter the North and the South. And it was always fairly divided. Like in the West, uh, they were, you know, speaking just Ukrainian. In the East, they were still very close to Russia. So there was still these uh, separate units and you could see what you were over there. But now it's one nation against something. And this is why yeah. when people are united, and the government is working with the people and the people trust the government, that's where the magic happens. And I think that's where we should look at Ukraine right now to see, hey, maybe we have to learn something, right? Maybe we have to look at what they're doing to maybe start to kind of 
Fancy signatures, <laughs> you know. Yeah, not to go down this road too much, but it's really interesting, and, and I ad, I admire Ukraine for that one very simple reason: they all united. There's grandmas and aunts and uncles and ki- like in the streets mm-hmm. with you know AK-47s, flak jackets, no BS. Like yeah. th- they're at the end of their road. And, and, you know, uh, you know, I was in New York for, for 9-11. I understand every detail of that day, that year, the, the whole decade uh, in detail. And I will tell you at that point that our nation actually said, you know what? Who cares about left and right? Let's come together. Let's make decisions. Everyone was charged up, ready to go because they were scared and they banded together. But it's 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 frightening to see that. It takes tyranny and tragedy to to get to that point, you know, not to, to get too yeah. political with it, but no, it's, it's like, just an interesting we, observation. And I think, yeah, I think it's coming you up know? during the documentary saying we shouldn't need a war to be able to unite people, right? You know, maybe we... They, 100%. They, it's a great point. 100%. The goal should be try to unite yeah. them without having an enemy. That's kind of the easy, the, the easy route, but let's try to do it without, I say. Yeah. How do you think you've gotten to know and, you know, you've gotten to know Ukraine better than a lot of people and you've gotten to see business firsthand. Um, and I think the world has just been so impressed by the bravery of Ukrainians and and, and their grit. Uh, where do you think that comes from, that spirit, that energy? Oh, it's, it's, it's part of it. When people say Ukraine and Russia are the same, they, they, they speak, they, Ukrainians speak Russian. I mean, there is a Ukrainian language and some of them speak Russian, but the core inside is completely different. Like the, if you look, if you translate the, the national anthem, it's like, we are going to die for our freedom because we have the blood of the Cossacks. You know, it's like they'd be constantly invaded. They always fought for their freedom. Even in their logo, if you break down the logo, it says freedom, like the, the trident of Ukraine. Oh, in, wow. Yeah. No, it's, hmm. it's like, Freedom is our religion. Like it's in their national anthem, in their songs, in their poetry. Everywhere is like, we are free. We're not going to bow down. You can try, but you're not going to take our land. Because everyone just tried to take the land because it's always been a very fertile land. Uh, so, and they've been, and they're surrounded, right? You know, Poland and, and uh, Belarus and Russia. So everyone will always try to take a piece of this. This is before the Soviet Union, right? So if you look at their history, they always had to fight. And that spirit has always been there. Even, you know, when in 2014, when there was uh, uh, the Maidan, Euro-Maidan revolution and students basically overthrown the government just with, with sticks and, and, and stones and uh, police were shooting people, 150 people mm. were killed and people were running in front of the bullets. And this is just because they wanted to be part of Europe, not like the European passport. They just wanted to have uh, a free trade agreement, right? Like there was grandmothers that yeah, were doing this. Yeah, yeah. Nothing was affecting them, right? It's not that this grandmother was going to travel around Europe, but it was the principle of like the government has said something and now they're backtracking. They're corrupt. I'm going to go down the square and I'm going to be die. I'm going to die for this. Not because I want to be part of Europe. It's because I'm going to be free. When you see something like this, it's like, how can you take this land? That's why I, when I was over there, yeah. I was like, I was really shocked that the war started because I was like, you're never going to be able to bow down these people. No one had it for like a thousand of years, you know? So 
And uh, can you just give us a quick overview? Because you're, you're helping with Commerce for Good. Just tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I think Commerce for Good started as an initiative of um, basically a network of volunteers. This is actually where the decentralization starts to be actually quite interesting. Um, I never done charity in my life in terms of like organizing. I, I donated money in the past, but I never organized charity initiatives. Um, so when the war started, uh, we had a lot of friends that started to volunteer around the Kharkiv region. Kharkiv is where my wife is from and has been, I think, liberated last week. So it's been under bombs and under fighting, heavy fighting for a long time. So we started to have this network of volunteers that were basically trying to, uh, you know, just bring in medicine and bring in food. A lot of money comes in uh, to big organization. The issue is like when you work for UNICEF or Red Cross, you work for a Red Cross, you're not going to risk your life to actually bring uh, food and humanitarian aid into the war zone. So the volunteers can work much faster. And everything is organized through Telegram groups, uh, Instagram, and all of that. It's like someone send a picture, you send some money, you go to buy some medicine, I need this, I need some helmets, I need a bulletproof vest. So there is this big network of volunteers that started to finance. Um, and then we basically realized that uh, that was the charity system was kind of broken. Right? And I was like, why all this money is coming in? But they're not reactive. Uh, they're not being reactive uh, enough. So Commerce for Good started to finance these volunteers. Mm -hmm. We kept on financing our volunteers as well, using my own money as well. Uh, once kind of the funds ran out, because initially it was easy to raise, but then as the Ukraine, um, you know, as Ukraine, uh, let's say, interest started to die down, it was much harder. So Commerce for Good now, the idea is to move it into this uh, solution called Dido, which is a decentralized impact-driven organization, and to use, uh, uh, create basically almost like a DAO, like a Discord group, where donors can come in and make decisions and look where the money is being used, pay a subscription every month, and in exchange, you get content that you can use for your social media. Because what was happening is that the volunteers, when they were doing something, buying or bringing food into the world zones, they were doing videos, videos and photos. And then we were giving these photos to our donors at the time, and they were like, oh, can I use them for the social media because that would be great. So we realized that content can be a currency. <laughs> right? So like, why don't we build these things where it's a DAO, so it's the a great line, content can be a currency. Right? Yeah, and then in exchange, you pay, I don't know, two ninety nine a month, you get 30 pieces of content from the volunteers. So we solve transparency on one end, but at the same time, business gets something back. And I understand if you donate money the first time, it's very easy. If you don't get anything back, you're not going to donate again. It's really hard. So I was trying to find something that creates a circle, yeah. right? Not that I raise 50 grand one time and it's easy, and then the second time I cannot do it again. So that's uh, where commerce Fantastic. Yeah, we, we, we often talk about, you know, applications or dApps on, on, on the blockchain uh, and, and NFTs and smart contracts mm -hmm. in, in general that you, if you're creating these things and creating environments or DAOs or whatever you're doing, even Discord servers, you have to offer utility. You have to offer something in return, whether you're a brand, whether you're a cause like yours. You have to give something back. The the way they did it, um, you know, and you know, I I think that the president of the Ukraine is, is actually amazing at this. He understood how to manipulate content and social yes. content and use it to your point 
as currency. So, you know, I look at it, you know, from a user journey standpoint, like, hey, I'm in the U.S. I want to get involved. I'm going to go into Mateo's fund here. Uh, I'm going to contribute because I can't grab a gun and go, literally. <laughs> you know, I can't grab a first aid kit and help people. I can't physically do that. But I want to share that I, I actually had a, a, a part in this. It's it's really brilliant that you're going to give them back, you know, photos and, and, and info and graphics and whatever you're giving them to share on their social network. And it's 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 called the network effect. And once you once you understand it, it's. A, yes, yes. Very transparent. I love it. It's a beautiful story. You can see where your money goes, right? Um, I, I think. Where did they go? Yeah. Right? Yeah. And right. You know what? And and. The idea of theft within within the nonprofit sector or donation sector is the biggest deterrent for people actually giving. I believe people are inherently good and they actually want to help people, whether it be their family members, their neighbors or someone in Ukraine or Italy or wherever you are in the world. Uh, they want to help, but they just won't throw their money out in the window or set it on fire. Or give you know going into uh, the greedy pockets of uh, bad actors. So, Matt. Yeah, Matteo, it's uh, <laughs> it's amazing stuff you're doing. We we want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I think give us uh, for people listening, and we're of course going to provide the links and, and get the word out there. But tell us where people can learn more about pop up. Obviously, pop up dot store, but uh, anywhere else you'd like them to check out, and also commerce for good. Um, Commerce for Good and Dido is going to come up in a few months, so uh, we're kind of working right now on the, the site and coming up with the, the whole concept. Uh, you know, it's like it's been the evolution based. Commerce for Good is going to basically disappear. It's going to become Dido. That's kind of the evolution of it. Pop-up is pop-up.store, and uh, if you go like Linktree slash Mateo was taken, that's kind of my page, and there's all my links in there, like the YouTube channel and... Uh, commerce for good and say everybody thank you so much for listening be sure to check out everything mateo you'll be inspired i was that's how we met on linkedin and mateo uh thanks so much for joining us <laughs>